I just love seeing you all come in like this. He's talking about the new refiners joining the Severed Patreon page. Just $5 a month and no cranial drill required. Go to patreon.com slash severed pod. Okay, you're all set. Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. Hello there, macro data refiners. I'm afraid we have some unfinished business in the break room. Before we get to that, this is Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. I'm your host, Alan S. Severed is a deep dive, comprehensive rewatch podcast. Everything is fair game from the first season of Severance. And be warned, there are tons of spoilers. If you remember last time, Helly wigged out in perpetuity, smashed a window, trying to get her head out into the stairwell, and wound up in the break room with Milchik, where she remains. This time out, the boys find the book Milchik left in the conference room, contraband of the highest order. Helly takes aggressive, then drastic steps in an attempt to convince her Audi to resign. Selvig pays her respects in the most horrific way possible. Irv learns more than he wants about O&D. Mark gets a wellness check, and it's Helly who really needs one. Look alive, refiners. End of quarter is only three weeks away, and we are behind on quota. Get yourself a cup of coffee, then open the file called The You You Are. This episode was written by Kerry Drake, along with Dan Erickson and staff writer Anna Oyang Munch. It was directed by Aoife McArdle. Aoife is a new name in the director's chair. She is from Omagh, Northern Ireland. Aoife has 26 directing credits dating back to 2005. She's worked on the series Brave New World and debuted her first feature film, Kissing Candace, in 2017. Aoife's primary credits come from music videos and shorts. She's done videos for Coldplay, U2, Brian Ferry, John Hopkins, and others. This episode was first released by Apple TV Plus on March 4th of 2022. The open of this episode puts us right back in the break room with Helly. She's been there a while. The tousled hair and dead eyes are a tip. Helly is hearing a voice. It sounds like maybe a low male voice, but you can't make out any words. Milchik rolls his eyes to the clock just as it ticks over 17.15, so 5.15, Helly's usual departure time in the elevator. And yes, she went in at 15.17 and came out at 17.15, in case that means anything to you numerologists. There's a cut to the hallways. Helly is following Milchik to the elevator, still rubbing the bloody bandage on her arm. Cut to Milchek looking into the elevator at Helly's hollow eyes. See you tomorrow, Helly. Wherever the break room is, it's just a couple minutes' walk from the elevators. The elevator doors close. We hear the start of the whir of departure, then the whir of arrival. The doors open to reveal Milchik in the exact same spot seemingly seconds later. The clock over his shoulder, though, says 9.05 a.m. We reverse to Helly now in a blue sweater with a rust-colored skirt. She looks down at the change of clothes. Fuck me. The session in the break room continues immediately. There's a shot of the digital clock on the wall. It's 9.08. I read it 300 times yesterday. 259. Again, please. Now. The mumbling Helly heard last night is louder now. What the hell is that voice? She starts in again on the statement with tears in her eyes. She pauses to say... She's sorry. She's really sorry. No paraphrasing. 
again. The music swells ominously. The mumbling voice is louder. There's a cut to the hallway outside the break room. The music is overwhelming. Then, silence. The theme begins. You may choose to hit skip if you'd like refiners, but if you do need a moment of reflection, please feel free to enjoy the soothing musical interlude of the opening sequence, and I'll talk to you on the other side. Back from the credit sequence, we're looking at another loose end from In Perpetuity. Petey's flip phone is still buzzing on the floor of Mark's basement. Mark retrieves it, sees the list of blocked calls, and decides to hide it in the same box as the sleeping bag. There's a gorgeous but chilly-looking overhead view of the entire Bell Labs campus. Aero Saarinen, who designed the building, also designed the surrounding parking lots and lakes to complement the overall structure. This aerial shot really displays the stunning breadth of his vision. Down on the severed floor, Mark is hiding out in a bathroom stall. He's looking at Petey's map of the floor. The close-up as he's holding it yields a few more details. To the far left is what looks like a Pac-Man ghost in a crown. The note underneath says... We're here because we're not all here. This does not seem to be a reference to MDR. The MDR space is labeled more to the right of the crowned figure. There's a double-headed arrow, which might indicate an elevator. Under this circled O and D is the line for research only, not to scale, which seems like a weird note for what is basically a doodle. Nobody's really expecting any great scale accuracy out of this drawing. To the far right is a stick figure with three lasers or daggers or something coming out of its eyes. Also, this figure seems to have lightning bolts coming from the back of its head. Mark's returning from the bathroom as Irv is crossing from the kitchenette. Irv thinks Mark should check on Helly's progress in the break room. Well, Mark doesn't have that power. Well, he can ask. He's not going to. He might. Just then, Bert from O&D pops in on MDR. Dylan immediately and hilariously weaponizes a stapler. I'm not sure if he's planning to shoot staples at Bird or if this is for hand-to-hand combat. Exactly how the wet fuck do you know where this office is? Dylan sure knows how to make a visitor feel welcome. Bert claims a predecessor of his had visited MDR once back when they still did the summits. She left directions for O&D on how to get to MDR. Give us them reverse. So it feels like O&D should be a long way away, but once we've been to O&D, Irv and the gang seem to visit all the time. Mark tries to get Dylan to chill. It's all right. What can we do for you, Bert? Bert has the flimsiest of excuses for his visit. He was worried Irv would be too distracted thinking about those new totes to do his work. So I figured, heck, let's bring them over now. That way... It won't be on your mind. Irv is beaming. He's blown away. Sure, Bert says he brought these pre-release totes for MDR, but we know this trip is really all about Irv. Thank you, Bert. Bert extends an offer for MDR to visit. He realizes they're busy, but he would be honored to have them as guests at O&D. Directions are in the front bag reversed. Hard pass. Eh, Dylan may be speaking for himself. Bert left MDR to head back to O&D at about 11.15. At lunch, we find Irv putting on his coat, preparing for the trek to O&D. Just 
seems soon to be taking him up on his offer. It's absurd. We've never visited them before now. He says he'll be back by one. It's a lunchtime jaunt. Dylan's pretty sure Herb's bowels are going to be disemboweled. He's going to die. Kelly walks in moments after Herb's departure. She's visibly worn out, hollow-eyed, and shell-shocked. How many times? 1,072. They look at each other for a long moment. Helly slowly makes her way to her desk. I'm now going to tell you the geekiest thing I will probably ever tell you in this entire podcast. You ready? This number, 1,072, is impossible. It's easy to throw around big numbers like this in order to get an audience reaction, but a lot of times, scriptwriters are bad about actually doing the math. Let me explain. We've had a couple of people read the entire compunction statement. I timed the reads. They run anywhere from 22 to 25 seconds each. Well, let's give them the benefit of the doubt and round that down to 20 seconds per read. Maybe they get faster as they're reading it. This means in a minute, the statement could be read three times. 60 times three means this statement could be read 180 times in an hour. If Helly read it 259 times yesterday, this means in order to get to a total of 1,072, she needed to read it an additional 813 times since her return to the break room at 9.05 a.m. She's been in there just under three hours, reading it at a breakneck pace, taking no breaks. She could only have read it just over 500 times since returning to the break room this morning. There's no way she'd be able to squeeze in 813 additional reads this morning. Okay, geek out over. You math geeks, you're welcome. There's a cut looking at the hallway ceiling that tilt down finds Irv picking his way through the halls with the aid of Bert's map. There's a close-up of the map. The route looks roundabout, leading back through the elevator reception area. There are numerous turns in the halls. Quick cut into the kitchenette where Helly is still processing her break room experience with Dylan. Helly seems to be snacking on some Lumen brand peanuts. The weird voice she heard might be all her own. What about the voice behind the door? Crying baby, you mean? No, like the angry mumbly guy. There's a great sound story behind this effect. Jacob Ribikoff said the mumbling we heard in Helly's break room scene was none other than Vladimir... Putin. No, they didn't hire Putin. They took a speech of Putin's, in Russian of course, and reversed it. The backward speech was then laid in well below the level of the voices. What the hell is that voice? Just in case someone who speaks Russian and can also figure out back masking should happen to watch. Mark tells them they really shouldn't be discussing the break room. Dylan, of course, ignores him. Dylan says the way to beat the machine is to think about something you're really sorry for because it can pick up on real regret. I like to imagine my Audi's love maid with a mil for two, which is obviously badass, but I do pity the husbands. Love maid sounds about right. I don't even want to know how any Dylan knows what a milf is. Irv is still winding his way through the halls with the map. A couple of thoughts as Irv can continues orienteering. First, how is there no one else in any of these halls? There have to be more people down here than the Macrodats and a couple of O&D folks, but you'd never know it. The halls are always empty. Also, I'm curious, 
where is all this art O&D is supposed to be out hanging and rotating around the various departments? We get to look down huge expanses of hallway, but there's never a piece of art hanging in the halls other than when Bert is putting something up. There's a cut back to the kitchenette. Mark is trying to be all mentor-like. Break room sucks, but that's why we have protocols and procedures so we don't end up there. You'll learn, I promise. Wow, condescend there much, boss? Helly and Dylan give each other a look. Back out on the trail, Irv has finally found O&D. Numerous flat files can be seen in the foreground with large storage drawers along the back wall. O&D seems to be responsible for a lot of stuff. There are a couple of small canvases on tabletop easels and some serious-looking work lights on the back tables. No one appears to be around. Hello? Who's that? Oh, hi. It's Irving B. from Macro Data Refinement. We met in the hall the other day. It's Felicia. She's not recalling the meeting fondly. She knows why Irv's here. Bert's over there by shelf six. As she leaves the area, Felicia snaps. Don't touch anything. Not a lot of love loss between O&D and MDR. Grudges caused by coups can take a long time to heal. Bert is impressing Irv with shop talk. The talk, of course, turns to the hall art. Irv is jealous O&D gets to see the new art before anyone. He shares an emotional experience with Bert. It's so dumb. But... I actually cried when you guys put up the youthful convalescence of Kier. No. I did. I never thought I'd see the handbook passage depicted visually. It was only up for a month or so. A man. What a month. Bert slides a drawer shut and tells Irv to come with him. They return to the main room where Irv first arrived. He asks, almost as an aside, what happened to Felicia? She's the only other member of the department, and she was here just a few minutes ago. Bert waves it off. Supply run. Bert explains the hall art cycles through the departments, then ends up back here in O&D. He has pulled a large canvas out of one of the flat files. It's the one Irv had mentioned, the youthful convalescence of Kier. It shows a young Kier Egan lying in a wooden bed. Two ladies, either nurses or maids, are on either side of his head. A man, possibly a doctor, is crouched by the candle. A man and a woman, most likely Kier's parents, are kneeling in prayer at the foot of his bed. We know from certain visible handbook passages, Kier was stricken with consumption before his 12th birthday. Now known as tuberculosis, consumption got the name because of the weight loss and wasting away observed in patients. TB is bacterial and can be easily spread by an infected person through the air. It normally affects the lungs, but can also attack other organs. Symptoms include a chronic cough with blood in the mucus, fever, night sweats, and weight loss. Consumption was a huge concern in the 19th century, especially among poor urban dwellers. Only about half of those who contract TB will survive it. Kier did survive his bout of TB, even though he mentions his very frail physique. He reported a susceptibility to bruising and weakness in his youth. He attributed his weakness to the, quote, close biological relationship of his parents. This is a delicate way of saying they were inbred. His parents were most likely cousins or possibly even siblings. There is a strong correlation between the art of Kier and the many paintings throughout the ages depicting biblical passages. 
The difference is Kier's art seems to be a little more factory produced than something like, say, the Sistine Chapel. Seeing the canvas causes Bert to quote the depicted passage from, you know, the handbook. Let not weakness live in your veins. Cherished workers drown it inside you. Rise up from your deathbed and sally forth. More perfect for the struggle. The two men are standing by the frame painting, which is laying on a work table. They each put their hands on the frame. A close-up reveals their hands getting closer to each other. Finally, Bert puts his hand over Herb's. The moment is tense and electric. These two old friends, Turturro and Walken, are doing an amazing job as scene partners. This scene crackles. Irv breaks the moment nervously. I'm sorry. What time is it? I have to go. He rushes away, headed back to MDR. In MDR, Mark seems to be working at his terminal when Heli approaches from behind. She's carrying a glass of water. No surprise, saying the compunction statement 1,072 times is going to leave you with a dry throat. Mark realizes she's there. Really? Oops, he was not working. He was looking at Petey's map. He quickly puts it in his top drawer before turning. He could not look more guilty about being caught if he tried. Helly says she got to 4% on her file. Yes, feels good, right? Mark's response seems forced. He was a little too freaked out about her coming up behind him. She gives him a questioning look before she sits. Helly knows he's up to something, and it might not be Lumen Kosher. Yes. Herb's return trip from O&D seems to have taken him in a different direction. He passes by the conference room where Milchik was reading Rickon's new book just yesterday. Milchik happens to have left Rickon's book sitting there in his chair, face up even. Milchik put it there when he jumped up to respond to Helly's broken window alarm. He's been spending time with Helly in the break room ever since. It looks like he forgot to go back and get the book. In my mind, this miss refutes the Milchik clone theory. If there were more than one Milchik, he could both be in the break room with Helly and still clean up his contraband in the conference room. A book is high contraband on the severed floor, at least any book not written by Kier or in the service of Kier. The UUR most certainly does not seem to be a book by or about Kier. It catches Herb's eye as he passes by in the hallway. Well, of course it does. It's bright orange and it's a book. Herb stops, goes back, and has another look at the book sitting in the chair. He doesn't touch it. He stands in front of the chair for a moment, then slowly walks back to the door. He looks up and down the hall, completely unsure about what to do. I didn't mention it at the time, but when Cobell brought Rickon's book onto the severed floor, she rode there in an elevator. This must be non-severed elevator access to the severed floor, and it does not seem to include the same code sensors as the severed elevator. There's a cut to a close-up of Petey's map of the floor. That's weird. Didn't Mark just toss that in his drawer? Cut to a long shot, and we see Helly reading over the map. Mark is returning to his cubicle from the kitchenette. What's this? Yeah, she knew he was up to something. She was just waiting for her chance to strike. Will you put that away? Helly jumps up and starts to circle the cubicle cluster. When Dylan hears them, he jumps up. But what do I? 
it's a map of the hallways. Dylan says he didn't think they were supposed to make maps. No, they aren't. Mark says he thinks Petey made it. Oh, shit, you didn't turn it in? Hallie calls Mark a hypocrite when it comes to the rules. She also wonders why they can't make maps. It's an Egan rule, and they're not my creation in miniature. Everything Keir Egan wrote sounds like the King James Version of the Bible. Dylan is checking out Petey's map. What the fuck is this? They look like houses, right? That's how houses look. Helly thinks maybe Petey found someone on the outside. She thinks Petey was trying to tell them something. Uh, no. Mark keeps shooting down every comment. Look like a boot, Mark. She says he's more loyal to this place than to his friend. Mark says the whole place has come apart since Petey left and Helly arrived. They used to be able to have fun and work without the whole place imploding. Work is bullshit. The work is mysterious and important. Wow. Kier knows how to make everybody feel special, doesn't he? Mark rolls into an explanation of how Kier would have wanted it. Kier is the only religion the severed workers have, and they all seem to have taken to the cult of Kier, although their loyalty is in varying degrees. Dylan is watching the whole exchange with amusement. Mark comes back around again to the whole idea of workmates as family. You know, children of my industry. Well, hell, he's not buying it. I could not, with a razor to my throat, be less interested in being your family. Helly takes the map from Dylan and holds it in Mark's face. Your best friend left this for you. And you don't give a shit. Mark snatches it out of her hand and goes to one of the cabinets. He pulls out a desktop paper shredder. You're right. I don't give a shit. Mark runs the photo with the map on the back through the shredder. Mark. Helly looks a little shocked he would do that. As the two are facing off, Irv arrives. Mark. It's an emergency. Cut to an over-the-shoulder shot looking at Rickon's book still in the seat of the conference room chair. Mark's in the middle, Irv is standing to Mark's left, and Dylan is on his right. None of the three has actually touched it yet. Irv said he thought about getting Milchik, but he didn't want to break the chain of command. His immediate superior would be his department chief. Has anyone seen anything like this before? This is entirely new territory for all three of these innies. Irv, of course, is able to quote Kier chapter and verse on the subject of other books. Be content in my words, and dally not in the scholastic pursuits of lesser mm, men. No books except the handbook, I know. Like any good dictator, Kier is into banning books. All books. If it wasn't written by Kier or about Kier, don't read it. Mark finally picks it up. He's as shocked as anyone to see his name in a handwritten inscription on the title page from the author. It reads, To Mark, the intrepid cartographer of the mind. This is an interesting choice of words. A cartographer is a map maker. Mark just destroyed a very important map. Is the use of this term reminding Mark of what he should be doing or possibly foreshadowing Mark's eventual return to cartography? Eh, maybe. It's signed Rickon with a flowing hand. The R also has a hilarious loop on the front, much like you'd see in the handwriting of someone who's in, say, junior high. Mark decides he needs to turn this contraband in. Irv thinks it might be a loyalty test. Remember the spicy candy? I would love to know how spicy candy translates to loyalty, but there's no time for that now. Irv tells Mark he should turn it in. Mark says he's going to give it to Milchik. 
This arrangement with Dylan on one side and Irv on the other sets up a great nod to a classic scene from Animal House. In the 1978 fraternity comedy Animal House, there's a scene where Tom Hulse's character pictures a little devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other shoulder while at a Delta party. Dylan's the devil, Irv is the angel, and Mark is just confused. It's booty. It's booty with your name on it. Excellent decision, Mark. This is an idolatrous text that should be brought to him immediately. Cut back to Helly, sitting all alone in the MDR space. She's isolated in the far left of the frame by the cubicle walls. It looks like she's staring right into the camera. The angle reverses. We realize Helly is sizing up the copier station. She strolls over to it. There's a shot from inside the cabinet below the copier. Helly opens the door to reveal a small, probably 12-inch guillotine-style paper cutter sitting there. It's the kind with the handle on one end of the blade and a hinge on the other. Anything that goes on the board under the blade is neatly sliced off with quite a bit of force when you push down on the handle. Helly seems intrigued by this device. Before we discover Helly's plans, there's a cut to one of the many Lumen hallways. Mark is leading Irv and Dylan. Dylan is debriefing Irv on the status of O&D. So what's their space like? Stalactites and shit? No, it's nice. Bert's fostered a really welcoming environment. He understands the spirit of Lumen. There's a long shot of the boys coming into the MDR space. Helly is not at her workstation. Helly? We hear the sound of a door being kicked in. Cut to Cobell at her desk, reacting to what turns out to be an intrusion into her office. It's Helly. She's carrying the paper cutter. Milchik is chasing after her. I want a camera. I am so sorry, Miss Cobell. What is happening here? What's happening is you're going to give me a video camera. What's happening is Helly has realized damaging their shared body might get the attention of her Audi, or at least her handlers. She wants to video a resignation to her Audi. Or you're going to have to explain to her why she's missing four fingers. Cobell starts to say something calming. Helly shuts her up by slamming the cutter down on the desk. (sighs) Hey there, little leaguers. Do not try this one at home. This entire scene makes me squirm. I hope that blade is both plastic and locked back because it looks horrible. Like Helly is seconds away from slicing off her digits. Britt Lauer's intensity in this scene is off the charts. She is amazing. This is truly mesmerizing and creepy stuff. Do I look like I'm fucking around right now? No, no, you do not. Britt had a great quote in an interview. She said shooting the scenes on the severed floor meant she had to wear pantyhose. She said they were a great motivator for playing any heli. I don't have any personal experience, but Britt said the irritation and discomfort caused by wearing pantyhose for 11 months would make anybody mean. Cobell's frozen, staring up at Helly. She realizes she's dealing with a desperate person who just might slice four fingers off right there on her desk. Helly! We hear Mark in the background. He's calling for Helly, and you know he's in trouble for letting her out of his sight. Hi, Mark. Cobell knows there's only one way to handle this. Give in. Mr. Milchek. Could you get the video camera, please? We cut to a long shot from the side of Milchik shooting Heli with the small digital video camera. It looks like this time they're in Cobell's outer office between the water cooler and the filing cabinets. Heli is sitting in a chair, her hand still in the paper cutter. The focus changes to the viewfinder of the camera. Heli puts the paper cutter on the floor and looks imploringly into the lens. Hey. 
This is all we get of whatever Helly thought was her last best hope for convincing her Audi self to resign. She looks so pleading, so sincere. Surely it will work this time, right? Do I look like I'm fucking around right now? Cut to a POV shot in the hallway. We're following the whole gang. Irv, Dylan, Milchek, Mark, Cobell, and Helly. They're headed for the severed elevator. We walk with them for a while. It's been said that as a director, Ben Stiller may like to walk with and drive with his characters just a little too much. When I saw this walking scene, I thought, okay, Ben, let's get there. Then I remembered this is not Ben behind the camera, it's Aoife. This must mean the long walks and the long car rides are a visual signature of the series, not just one director. Helly stops in front of the elevator and addresses the group. She's so sure her message will be heeded. This is her goodbye. Well, boss, guess this is the part where I should tell you to go to hell. Except you're already here. Yeah, it's been a while since anyone reminded us this place is hell. The elevator arrives. We watch Ellie get on from across the room, looking over the shoulders of the rest of the group. She delivers one last gig to Milchek as the doors close. I was never sorry. She is certain she won't be going back to the break room. There's a cut to Ellie's point of view from inside the elevator. The clock on the far wall says 1.36 p.m. When the doors close, Ellie looks down at the video mini-disc in her hand. The elevator starts to whir. The elevator stops. Ellie looks up as it's opening. Is that Milchik? She looks back down at her hand. She's holding a different mini-disc. The clock behind the assembled group now says 2.55. Ellie was gone for about an hour and 20 minutes. The camera angle reverses to show us Ellie standing in the elevator, realizing what's happened. She looks very defeated. We cut to the video player in the MDR room, the same one where Ellie watched her welcome video. This message from her Audi is not quite so chipper and positive as it was during the welcome. She says she knows any Helly is unhappy with the life she's been given, but we all have to accept reality. Audi Helly then lays out reality as she sees it. I am a person. You are not. I make the decisions. You do not. And if you ever do anything to my fingers, know that I will keep you alive long enough to horribly regret that. Just in case there was any question, she says the resignation request has been denied. Turn it off. Britt Lauer is killing it as both versions of Helly. There's an immense difference between the two characters, and it is so much fun to watch her playing off herself again. Her comment about, I'll keep you alive long enough to horribly regret that? is a bit chilling. This would indicate Audi Helly realizes there are ways to torture and abuse the innies. She's threatening herself with abuse. This is Helena Egan, possibly next in line for CEO of Lumen, and she knows there are ways to abuse the innies. Knowing this makes whatever the Egan plan is for severance that much darker and more foreboding. I am a person... You are not. As the gang stands behind Helly, looking stunned right along with her, we hear the voice of Audi Mark. Welcome your child into a world surrounded by nature. No thanks. He's sitting in his darkened townhouse in front of the computer. There's a beer visible. He's talking to Devin on the phone. There are two light sources in this shot. The computer screen in front of Mark on the far left of the shot 
and a small desk lamp behind him to the far right edge of the screen. The desk lamp is spotlighting a picture that's just out of focus. We can see it's two people, most likely male and female. Is this Mark and Devin, or possibly Mark with his dead wife, Gemma? It sounds like the Rickin goofiness continues. Scroll down to explore our rustic birthing cabins. Mark flips through several of the pictures. He's not impressed. I don't know. It just uh, it looks more like a shitty ski resort than a birthing center to me. But Devin is not put off by Mark's comments. She says it will be great and he will like it. Devin seems to be working hard to put a good face on this. How much of this was Reagan's idea, 300% or 400%? Devin says he needs to get his snark out now or he's never going to earn his uncle badge. They hang up and almost immediately Mark's phone sounds an alert. There's a close-up of a dialogue box. Mark has received a news alert from the Cure Chronicle. The Cure Chronicle is the area's most trusted source for local news in Cure PE. It's a daily publication illuminating the area since 1893 during the reign of original CEO Cure Egan. Mark thumbs the alert and a news story pops up. A picture of Petey in his work suit is visible. The headline says, Severed Lumen Worker Dies After Collapsing from, quote, Unknown Ailment. The Cure Chronicle is, surprisingly, pretty unbiased when it comes to reporting on those things that might not be 100% Lumen approved. They also don't shy away from reporting about negative effects caused by the severance procedure. Mark reads for a few seconds when suddenly Petey's flip phone starts to buzz. Mark is sitting in his kitchen. He packed Petey's phone in the sleeping bag box in the basement. The flip phone sounds unnaturally loud, like it's echoing through the house. Petey's phone has become Mark's telltale heart. It's haunting him. The phone keeps buzzing. Cut to an overhead shot, looking down at the cardboard box marked camping, the source of the sound. Before we leave Mark's place, we need to talk for a second about this flip phone. I love how it has become Petey's heart, haunting Mark even after Petey's death. What I'm not believing is the battery life on this phone. I had several flip phones back in the days before slab phones took over. I remember them having lousy battery life. If you kept it on standby, didn't make a call, and no one called you, you might hold a charge for a few days, a week if you had a really new battery. Petey was sleeping at the greenhouse for at least a few days without power, so he wasn't charging his phone there. He was at Mark's for a night, and I don't remember him packing his charger. Now it's been a couple more days since he wandered away. He keeps getting calls which do use battery even if you don't answer. This flip phone is still active and still taking calls, and it's going to continue to hold a charge for quite a while longer. This has to be some advanced Lumen battery technology. As the phone keeps buzzing, there is a cutaway to the profile relief statue of Kier at the Lumen Building. Back at the mothership, Grainer is coming into Cobell's office. Have you heard from the board yet? The reverse shot shows Cobell playing with one of the finger trap incentives. This is a weirdly funny scene. She's distractedly pushing her index fingers into it, almost like she's playing an accordion. Grainer wants to clarify blame on this Petey thing. 
He says neither of them was at fault. Kilmer wasn't your fault, and it certainly wasn't mine. They'll understand. If tough guy Grainer is looking for reassurance, he's come to the wrong place. If you want a hug, go to hell and find your mother. She mentions Petey's reintegration. Grainer reminds her the board has never acknowledged reintegration. Cobell knows differently, but she has to prove it. We have to get his chip. Nah, hold on a minute. You mean the chip he presumably still has in his head? Whoa. Grainer says his body is scheduled for cremation after the memorial on Sunday. This raised questions. If Petey is scheduled for cremation after the service, does this mean he was embalmed? I went to the Neptune Society, the largest providers of cremation services in the nation, to find out. They say it is necessary for the body to go through the embalming process if there's going to be a delay between death and when the body will be cremated. If the family chooses to have the deceased lie in state at the funeral, the body must be embalmed. It's a health issue. The embalmed body may then be safely cremated after the service. It's more expensive to go through both processes, but it does happen regularly enough for there to be a frequently asked questions page about it. Also important to note, during the embalming procedure, all organs are left in the body, so Petey's brain would most likely still contain his reintegrated severance chip. The more common approach for a deceased person who has requested cremation is to have the body cremated shortly after death, usually within 24 hours, then have the urn with the deceased ashes at the memorial service. This approach allows the family to take some time when it comes to planning the service. Since our story needs a way to get that chip back, Petey's family has decided he's going to be lying in state. Grainer pauses after telling Cobell the news about Petey's body. FYI. Cobell stares up at him silently. Grainer turns on his heel and walks out. The cat reverses to Cobell at her desk. She's sitting with a look of grim determination on her face. She starts to recite the principles of Lumen. Fish. The camera pushes in as she slowly goes through all nine. As she's finishing the list, she picks up a small framed picture from her desk. It is a very old-looking photo. Andrew Baseman said this is a replica of a daguerreotype. This must be a picture of Keir in his younger days. The music swells as she gets to wiles. The retrieve Petey's chip operation is going to require some wiles, that's for sure. The music transitions us to a still picture of Petey holding a coffee mug. On it is a heart and the word dad. We cut to a reverse of Mark looking at the picture. It must be Sunday. This is Petey's funeral service. Audi Mark still only knows Petey as an Audi. He looks uncomfortable being here. Cobell walks up to him, only she's playing the character of his neighbor, Mrs. Selvig. Mark. Mrs. Selvig? What are you doing here? Good question. What is he doing here? Mark stammers, looking for a good excuse. Finally, he says the news report mentioned this fellow worked at Lumen. Maybe Mark knew him. After Mark regains his composure, he asks Selvig the same question. Oh, he used to come by my shop. He adored my hibiscus wrap. Oh, my God. So they're both lying to each other. Selvig grabs Mark's arm and says at least they each have a date now. 
She motions to Petey's body, which is in an alcove off to the side from the main sanctuary. How convenient if someone were wanting to, say, rip an electronic device out of the deceased's skull? Mark begs off viewing the body, saying he needs the bathroom. Service is starting soon. Yeah. Mark ducks into a side room. He wasn't actually headed for the bathroom. He found the bar. This is interesting. We are in a church. They're shooting in the Trinity Lutheran Church on North Street in White Plains, New York. I've been to a number of funerals. I've been to a lot of churches. I don't remember an open bar at any funeral I've ever attended, even the ones at funeral homes. Mark doesn't seem surprised by it at all. It's like he was expecting it. Having a bar in a church seems very progressive. I did find this interesting bit of information since we're in a Lutheran church. According to a 2018 poll, Lutherans admitted to drinking and embracing alcohol more than any other Protestant denomination. 76% of Lutherans polled admitted to drinking and being okay with drinking if done in moderation. Methodists were second at 62%. Still, I don't see Lutherans offering an open bar at a funeral in the church even if they aren't serving hard liquor. Uh, whiskey rocks. Oh, it's just wine, sir. I did do a search on open bar at a funeral just out of curiosity. I found some discussion threads where a number of people were in favor of it, but I could only find one or two who said they actually had a bar of any kind at a relative's funeral. Also, weirdly, in the bar of the church, they've got a pop song playing. It was a monster number one for Mac Davis. It's Baby Don't Get Hooked on Me, which was recorded in March of 1972 and released that July. It would spend three weeks at number one on both the Billboard Hot 100 and Easy Listening charts. It was ranked the number eight song overall from 1972. Davis said he wrote the song because his record company demanded he do something with a hook. Elsewhere, Cobell is scouting the body. She comes up behind a young woman, maybe in her early to mid-twenties, with short black hair, who's standing at the side of the casket. Hello. Were you a friend? The young woman turns slowly with a sneer on her face. He was my dad. Oh, so this must be June, who Petey mentioned in Mark's basement. Greatest kid on earth and a hell of a guitar player. Cobell ignores the caustic response. I suppose you were close and everything, hmm? The girl does another turn, this time with a look of almost disgust. When it comes to social graces or any type of empathy, Cobell is sorely lacking. Mark had to settle for a glass of wine. He's drinking and still listening to Mac Davis. A woman steps to the bar and asks for a glass of white. I'm sorry, I don't know you. I'm Nina. Oh, uh, Mark's got. I'm Peter's ex-wife. Ah, X. This might explain Petey's motivation for being severed. Many of the severed workers seem to be trying to escape something. Mark stammers, looking confused. Nina figures out what's happening. You're from Lumen. She realizes Mark may have known Petey, but he didn't know Peter at all. June steps into the room. Hey, Mom. Yeah. They want to start. Okay, baby. Hi, you're, uh, are you June? Yeah. Hmm. 
We transition with a wide shot of the sanctuary. Cut to Mark opening the bulletin for the service. The same Picapiti from the front hall is being used on the inside cover. There are three people we can identify other than Kilmers participating in the service. Their names are easily visible in a freeze. Stephen Devon, D-A-V-A-N, is the guitar accompanist. Dan Sheets, and that's E-A-T-S instead of double E's, is doing a reading from Peter's band. And a prayer is being handled by Denise O'Connor. It's common practice for TV shows to do shout-outs to non-performing crew members in printed pieces like this one. I was curious if they might be doing something like that here, and they are. Stephen Devon is in the Severance Art Department. No word if he really plays guitar. Denise O'Connor has been a set dresser and prop person going back to 2011. On Severance, her job is prop shopper. Dan Sheets is listed in the Severance Camera Department as Daniel. Dan is the Libra Head Technician, which is a highly specialized and pretty cool job. A Libra is a specially designed remote-controlled camera mount that allows for crazy crane and movement shots in a number of different scenarios, like maybe racing backwards down hallways. They can mount this thing to cranes and vehicles to get what used to be impossible shots. According to Popular Mechanics, there are only a handful of trained Libra techs in the world, and Dan Sheets is one of them. There seem to be more severed folks among the mourners than you might think. According to a trivia item on the Severance Wiki, the names Dan S. and Denise O. do both appear on the wall display in the security office in Episode 9. Also, the name Stephen Devon appears on the list of severed employees Irv has at his home. As Mark is perusing the program, June slides into the pew behind him. Mark is sitting way in the back of the church. Nothing about this funeral is traditional. Normally, you'd expect immediate family to be down front. June may have been headed that way, but she decides to stop and quiz Mark. She wants to know if he knew her dad. He says he worked with him at Lumen, but he pauses for a long time while answering. Oh, you're one of those. One of those is pretty judgmental. June lays into Mark about his decision. You get the feeling she's really talking to her dad. Do you ever think that maybe the best way to deal with a fucked up situation in your life isn't to just shut your brain off half the time? Mark is speechless. He mutters something about not being sure. There's a noise from down front, a strummed guitar, Petey's voice. We cut to a big screen TV sitting in front of the altar rail. Petey and a younger looking June are both wearing guitars standing in what looks like a garage packed with junk. We're watching them on a standard deaf TV, which seems weird considering it's 2022. Maybe this was shot a few years ago. Maybe the original was shot standard deaf, but who still has an old standard deaf TV around to even play it on? Since so much of the tech on the severed floor is old school, I was curious if the retro tech may be extended to the Audi world of Kier. I don't think so. We've seen modern cell phones and the digital video camera Milchik uses, so they know about digital tech. Maybe this church just hasn't taken the time to update their TV. Is it really 2022? Andrew Baseman said in his Set Decor interview he was told the show is set, quote, a few years in the future. Since all of the visual cues we've been given indicate the year is 2022, I'm leaning more towards an alternate timeline instead of a futuristic one. 
This would allow for Lumen-style tech while retaining those other things we're used to in 2022. From the video, PD introduces the Metallica song, Enter Sandman. Enter Sandman was a 1991 hit for the band, peaking at number 16. It was also nominated for Best Rock Song at the 1992 Grammys. It didn't win, but it was an honor to be nominated. The song a bit ghoulishly twists a child's bedtime prayer into the fear of going to sleep and never waking up thanks to the evil Sandman. Petey is playing a hollow-bodied electric. June is playing an acoustic. All we're really hearing in the video is the electric, and it's pretty darn good. June is singing and strumming the acoustic. In a Variety article, Yul Vasquez said that is him playing on this clip. Oh, and in that article, he also said he is named after Russian actor Yul Brenner. Reaction shots around the room show the ex-wife and June both tearing up. Mark is watching passively. At the back of the room, Selvig crosses, then steps out of the sanctuary. Cuts back to the video reveal an annoying trope of home movies when they're used in movies and on TV. This is supposed to be the two of them playing in the garage. The camera's moving, so someone else has to be holding it, but then the video does something impossible for this kind of shoot. It cuts to a close-up of June. That's called an insert shot. If you're shooting two camera with one camera doing the long overview, you can pick up footage with the other camera for inserts but it would have to be edited later. Cutting to a close-up of a hand playing, or like here, a close-up of the singer, is common if you're shooting at least two camera. If you're shooting with a single camera, like what's happening in the garage, insert shots never happen. They can't. You'd at least have to do two passes, then edit. This isn't just severance. If you watch for it, most TV shows and movies will show home videos with production values you would never find at home. Why do they do it? Well, producers figure you won't catch it for one thing, and really it does look a lot better than a boring single-camera shoot. Selvig has stepped to the now-closed-off alcove where the casket is sitting. The lid has been closed and the flower saddle placed across it. Selvig moves the flowers so she can open the lid. This song continues covering the noise Selvig's making. We cut back to the video and see more impossible cuts from Petey back to June. Cutting back to Selvig, guess who checked the cranial drill out for the weekend? She pulls it out of her oversized purse. And her Sandman continues. Not only is it covering the noise, it's also providing a ghoulish soundtrack for Selvig's mission. There's a talk bit in the middle of this song. It's the recitation of a child's prayer. 
Petey goes into the talk bit chillingly, considering where we are. Pray the Lord my soul to keep. Pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake. If I die before I wake. I pray the Lord my soul to take. Pray the Lord my soul to take. Hush, baby, don't say a word. Never mind that noise you heard. Oh, look away if you're squeamish, refiners. Selvig goes right through Petey's temple with the drill. As the intensity of the song builds, we get faster and faster cuts from Mark to Selvig to the video. There's shots of Petey from Mark's memory, a cut back to Selvig on drill. Petey's bloody face outside the gas station. Petey wailing on guitar. Selvig pulls tweezers out of her purse. We get what has to be the most unique shot yet in the entire series, a point of view from inside Petey's head. Thank you, Aoife, for less than a second we had the point of view of the severance chip looking out the drill hole in Petey's skull. The song ends abruptly with Petey laughing. It's all gotten to be too much for Mark. He jumps up and walks quickly out of the sanctuary. In the hallway, he pauses to peer through the curtains where Petey's casket is sitting. We see his reaction shot, thinking he's caught Cobell at work. The reverse shows us the coffin once again closed and covered with the flower saddle. Cobell finished before Mark caught her. Cobell, or Selvig, surprises him walking up from his side. He explains this was probably a mistake. He really needs to go. She also has some excuse to leave. After ripping the hardware out of the deceased's head, it's a good idea to get out of there. Selvig says she'll go with Mark. The noise they make whispering in the hall gets the attention of June, who watches them leave. Before we leave Petey's funeral, we need to meet a couple of folks. The bartender is being played by James Augustus Lee. He's an actor from Providence, Rhode Island, with 23 acting credits dating back to the late 90s. James also has two writing and one production credit. Nina, Petey's ex, is being played by Canadian actress Joanne Kelly. She was born in 1978 in the Canadian province of Newfoundland and Labrador. Joanne has 50 credits on her IMDb profile, mainly on TV, dating back to 2001. She was a regular on the series Warehouse 13, where she appeared in 64 episodes over five years. June, Petey's daughter, is being played by Cassidy Layton. She's the only one of this group we'll be seeing again. Cassidy is originally from Vero Beach, Florida. She's an accomplished stage and television actress who is also a singer and professional musician. Although we aren't hearing her much on the video, Cassidy does play guitar, bass, piano, ukulele, and flute. Cassidy has notched 10 acting credits since 2017. We pick up after the funeral with Mark and Mrs. Selvig standing in Mark's driveway. She asks if the funeral was just too sad. Uh, something like that, yeah. Mark thanks her for being his funeral buddy today. Mark's about to go in when he has a thought. He decides to go for a drive. We cut to a dark rural road. Mark drives to a tree and a section of guardrail along the road. There's a pile of snow up against the guardrail. Mark stands for a long time with his hand against a large tree. It's the tree that killed his wife. Adam Scott is delivering an amazingly emotional scene without a word. I'm guessing this visit is most definitely going to fuel another night of drinking and passing out in front of the TV. The next day, the Lumen building is shrouded in fog. There's a close-up of a hand sliding a small plastic bag across a desk. In the bag is what has to be Petey's severance chip. 
The two-shot reveals Milchek standing in front of Cobell's desk. That's Petey. That's Petey. How did you... Would you mind taking that up to diagnostics for me? Milchik is considering how she could be in possession of Petey's chip. He's visibly shocked when he considers the possibilities. As Milchik is tucking Petey into his pocket, there's a knock at Cobell's door. Yes? Ms. Casey enters wearing a solid maroon dress. Ms. Casey also regularly wears a unique Lumen water drop pin. It really stands out on this outfit. We've seen this same pin around the building a couple of places. The secretary who calls down for Mark each morning wears one. It's been suggested this pin might indicate a specific type of severance, or possibly these pins are being used to mark Petey's people who never leave. You requested me, Miss Cobell? Miss Casey, I'd like you to run a special wellness session with Mark S. Milchik is surprised to hear it's for Mark. He just needs it. Trust me. Bird is in a hallway hanging a picture. We can see all the way to the corner, and there's not another picture anywhere in sight. This one is over a water fountain, and it is at a T in the hallway. But seeing a picture on a hallway wall is rare. Irv approaches, and we find this is a bit of O&D humor. Here invites you to drink of his water. Over the water fountain. Get it? The canvas depicts Kier standing on a rock promontory looking out over a vista of lakes and lush forest. It's been noted in the Severance Wiki the bodies of water below him may resemble the Great Lakes. Kind of. This painting is also very similar to an 1818 painting by Caspar David Friedrich called Wanderer Above the Sea of Fog. Bert is pushing a big hand cart loaded with canvases. Where is he putting them all? Irving, Felicia said you'd be here. The two men pause to reflect on the painting. Irv admits it's not his favorite. Bert says it's a beautiful vista, but they're both worried Kier might slip. This image is going to be called back later when Helly finishes refining her file. A cartoonish, rudimentary computer graphics version of this scene will appear. We'll talk about it more then. Bert brings up Irv's visit. He's worried he embarrassed himself. Irv stammers a bit. Are you embarrassed? No. Bert says he has four more stops. MDR considered joining me. MDR would. We cut to the two of them winding through the hallways. Check the canvas visible to the front of the cart as Bert turns the corner. The guy in the military uniform is most likely Kier Egan. It is believed Kier served as a military doctor during the U.S. Civil War. This looks very much like a Union officer's uniform of the era. The specific nature and duration of Kier's military service is unknown. Kier witnessing the suffering of wounded soldiers may have been a driving factor in his creation of Lumen. He founded Lumen in 1865, immediately following the war. He was only 24 years old at the time. As the two walk, they are discussing sleep up there, the handbook, what Kier has to say about falling asleep at work, and more. It's amazing how much time they have to study the word of Kier while still getting anything done in their departments. Christopher Walken says he knows the handbook, but he's really more of a first edition guy. He says, original word of Kier, then launches into a 
powerful recitation. Christopher Walken going full bore practically comes through the screen at you. And I shall whisper to ye, dutiful through the ages, in your noblest thoughts and epiphany shall be my voice, you are my mouth, and through ye I will whisper on when I am ten centuries demised. This is beyond Herb's scope of Kier's study. He says he doesn't understand. Bert explains Kier doesn't just communicate through the ages by the handbook and the paintings. He finds other ways. It sounds like Kier may have experienced the same kind of reinterpretation of his words as we find with the Holy Bible. The King James Version of the Bible, which is considered the most important translation of the Bible in history, was translated by 47 men, all biblical scholars, in the 17th century. They worked from original texts in Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Latin. The KGV was also based in part on two previous translations to English. Later biblical scholars would oftentimes go back to the original word, the biblical writings in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. There are shades of meaning to these original words that have changed over the centuries. Misinterpretations of some words over the years have caused variations in the ways we understand Scripture. I'm more of a first edition guy. There's a dissolve over Bird at the end of his speech. It's the page of a book filling the screen. We are seeing the opening of chapter 9 called The Quitting Bell. A cut reveals Mark hiding in the MDR bathroom again, reading his newly acquired contraband, The U-U-R. It looks like Mark went with the little devil and decided to keep the book. I'm surprised Milchik has completely forgotten about leaving it in the conference room. Rickon is just as goofy in print as he is in real life. Audi Mark would roll his eyes, but any Mark has never heard anything like these radical ideas. To us, Rickon is pointing out the obvious in his dramatic and overblown way. To any Mark, the words of Rickon are a revelation. Your job needs you, not the other way around. He closes the book and reflects on what he's read. There's a name referenced in the second paragraph of this page. Rickon mentions the tragic concessions worker, Alan Miller. According to Rickon, Miller was the guy at the concessions counter at a movie theater in Idaho. I was hoping for a reference to another crew member or some connection to Michael Chernus or Dan Erickson. Uh, nothing that I could find. I did find an Alan Miller with the same spelling in the book listed on IMDb. He wrote one episode of the TV series Nature in 2022, no other info about Alan, and no connection I could find to Severance. Weirdly, I found another Alan Miller in, get ready for it, Egan, Minnesota, spelled the same way. This Alan self-published a thriller on Amazon at the age of 88. Go Alan Miller of Egan, Minnesota. Any Mark flips the book closed and looks reverently at the cover photo of his goofy brother-in-law. If only any Mark knew what Audi Mark knows about Rickon. There's a quick cut to Irv saying goodbye to Bert. They've returned to O&D's office. Irv continues on, hopefully headed back to MDR where he should be working. Mark is sitting uncomfortably in the green straight-backed wellness chairs waiting for the appointment Cobell arranged. The painting of Kier taming the four tempers is still on the wall behind him. 
Ms. Casey opens the door of her treatment room. Mark? We cut to MDR, a spy shot through the door. Helly stands to look over the cubicle wall at Dylan, who is intently refining. I'm going to go. Do it. I'm working up till the bell. I think I may still crush this thing tonight. Hope you do. Dylan doesn't even look up as Helly heads out. We walk with Helly for a bit down the hall until the camera tilts down to reveal she's carrying a coil of one or more power cords. Hmm, now what would she be doing with power cords? A word here, refiners. Helly is going to do something brutal and shocking. She's going to attempt suicide by hanging. Feel free to bail momentarily if it gets too intense. Also, if you do have thoughts of self-harm, please talk to somebody. Oh, and if you get motion sickness, hang on, because we're about to bop all over the severed floor. A lot is happening. We cut away from Helly to Dylan, now alone in the MDR area. He gives a furtive glance around and stands. Hmm, hanging around to crush it tonight? Might have been cover for something else. Back to Helly in the elevator reception area. She grabs a metal waste can as she passes. Now we see Dylan rifling through Mark's desk. He finds the copy of the UUR Mark was reading in the John. Mark has it hidden between file folders in his desk drawer. Cut to a hand lighting a candle, and not just any candle. It's the candle Ms. Cobell stole from Mark. It's the one made by his wife Gemma as a craft project. As we all know, refiners, because we've already watched all nine episodes, Ms. Casey is Gemma Scout, Mark's dead wife. We don't know how, we don't know exactly what's going on, but we do know Ms. Casey is definitely Gemma's scout. Knowing that means Cobell's candle trick makes a little more sense. This is Annie Mark sitting with his thought-to-be-dead wife. This is the woman his Audi mourns constantly. She takes out a candle she made while she was the wife of the guy sitting there in her treatment room. Suppressing memories like these has to be a huge test for the severance chip. I also think Cobell might be testing another aspect of the chip. Remember how she smelled this candle when she found it in Mark's basement? Olfactory or smell memory is considered the most persistent of human memories. We can form implicit memories of smells without conscious recollection, then recall them instantly. Unlike visual and auditory memory, which can be swayed by later input, olfactory memory is highly resistant to interference. With enough persuasion, a witness can be convinced they saw something they didn't. But how could you possibly convince someone a smell is different than what they remember? Is it possible the designers of the severance chip haven't completely cracked blocking olfactory memory? Eh, Maybe. Cobell seemed very pleased when she found this candle. Ms. Casey gives Mark a ball of white clay. She says it helps to sculpt what he's feeling out of clay. Would you like to do that? There are cuts to Cobell, who's watching the session from her office monitor. I'm sure Cobell is looking for signs of recognition from either of them when it comes to the candle. We find Irv walking on a cloud through the halls. He sighs, half grins, and decides to turn back. Helly is at the elevator, long white power cord in one hand, metal trash can in the other. She takes off her ID lanyard. As we're watching Helly wait for the elevator, we hear the voice of Dylan. Destiny. We cut to an up-angle view of Dylan as he reads a passage from Rickon's book. The dingbat brother-in-law is also speaking to any Dylan. An acrostic poem experienced by the author Rickon Hale. 
The poem is chapter five of the You, You Are. There's a cut to Helly dropping her ID in the trash as she waits on the elevator. Irv is walking through a completely empty O&D area, at least the area he's seen. Irv hears a noise through a door at the back of the room. Nothing special, just a door. Might even be a storage closet. Irv hesitates for a moment outside the door as Dylan starts to read. D is for dreaming, the start of it all. There's a close-up of Mark's hands forming the ball of white clay on the wellness table. The elevator door opens. Our POV is from inside the elevator looking at Helly. The angle reverses. She takes the trash can in with her and looks up. Dylan continues to narrate. E is for energy. Breaking down walls. Helly drops the cord. Her intentions are very obvious. S is for stewardship. Of home and of earth. Irv opens the door to find the source of the noise. Bert, Felicia, and at least five other staffers in blue coats are busily moving around on a huge production floor. 3D printers and numbered workstations stretch as far as the eye can see. T is for terror, which gives us more worth. Irv doesn't enter. He steps back and lets the door close, his mouth hanging open. Bert lied to him. Not only lied, but also deceived him with a partial tour and only introducing Felicia. This is no two-person department. We're now looking down at Helly through the overhead elevator grate. She moves two panels out of the way, exposing the support bar between them. Mark is sculpting a tree out of the clay. It's the tree we saw last night, the one that killed his wife. You know, the woman who's sitting across the table from him at this very moment. How would any Mark know anything about a tree? The fact Mark is sculpting a tree, even if he doesn't know why, has to be a source of concern for Cobell. Some memory seems to be getting through. Eyes for eyes, which observe us with love. And yes, the poetry is really bad. Helly yanks on the ceiling crossmember to make sure it's sturdy. Mark's tree is taking shape as Ms. Casey passively looks on. Irv is leaving the O&D area without confronting Bert. And meaning newness rains down from above. There's a chilling shot from across the elevator reception area. Helly's back is to the camera as she's standing on the trash can in the narrow elevator. She's feeding the power cord over the cross member. And why? That's a question we needn't now ponder. Mark finishes his tree. We see him sit back proudly. We're watching the scene on Cobell's monitor. destiny, friends, shall deliver all yonder. Irv is trudging back to MDR. He's wearing his pain and disappointment like a blanket. Yeah, sorry, Rickon's bad poetry rubbing off. Helly has double-knotted the cord. She's flashing back to Mark peering over the cubicle ladder. Hey, how are you? Good. Yeah? Seems like you're getting the hang of stuff here. A shot looking into the elevator reveals Helly looping the cord over her neck. Cool. Helly puts her arms behind her back and kicks the trash can away. If you're watching on the Apple TV Plus app, make sure to disable the Up Next feature. If you're watching on a web browser, prepare to be annoyed. The screen will squeeze to the corner of the moment right before Helly kicks the trash can. 
It's very annoying, but you can't disable the Up Next feature in the web browser. Hey, Refiners, this is Alan S. calling from the future. I wanted to correct something here. Either I wasn't the only one bothered by the early squeeze at the end of this episode, or, as I prefer to think, someone at Apple TV listens to the Severed Podcast. My most recent viewing of this episode in a web browser included a welcome change. There is now a respectful moment of black screen before they squeeze the credits. The final video remains full screen through the end. Okay, that's all I've got. On you go. And refiners, those rolling credits mean the UUR is complete. Breathless would be a really bad pun, but we just heard an entire Rickon poem, so it can't be any worse than that. We'll all be breathless until next time. Refiners, shut down your workstations. This file is now at 100%. No facts about your Audi this time. R.I.P. Petey. The next time we gather, refiners, prepare for a candid look at the grim barbarity of optics and design. Please leave by the elevator and remember to stagger your departures. You've been listening to Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. Severed is written, produced, and hosted by Alan Stair. Severed is not endorsed by Red Hour Productions, Endeavor Content, or Apple TV+. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Severance, the Severance logo and all video and audio of Severance and Severance characters are registered trademarks of Red Hour, Endeavor Content, Apple TV+, or their respective copyright holders. Please make sure to leave a 5-star rating and review for Severed at Apple Podcasts.